Dear Lord God, we thank you for your presence with us in worship this morning. And we ask even now as we look into your holy word, your written word, would you um, cause the words to jump off the page to us that even as we study one person within salvation history, you would make manifest and unfold to us the plan that you have for all people um, through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Well, good morning. This is the first in a series of three, uh, three, three in October and three in November, and they're related, but there's a gap because I have to be gone for the mother-daughter retreat and get to be gone for the mother-daughter retreat in, um, in a couple of weeks. And so we're going to start to look at three portraits of Old Testament characters this October, and then this November we're going to look at New Testament people. So, um, and they happen to all be women. But, but my goal in this, let me just tell you my secret plan. It's not a secret because I'm telling you now. I'm glad to see that there are some men here because I do want this to be, I'm looking at these characters. A lot of times um, biblical scholars and people will look at women in the Bible and present them to women in the Bible as women. And they are women. And when women are hearing about them, we are women as well. And it's great to hear about great women of faith in the Bible. Um, but our, our goal is not necessarily to look at them as women and say, well, how can I as a woman learn from Sarah as a woman? We're looking at them as people to people. How can we as people of God learn from these women who are a part of the people of God throughout salvation history? So we're starting almost at the very beginning. We're not starting with Eve this time around. As I was preparing for this whole series, I realized I could probably do it several times over. So you might see recurrences of this because there are so many women in Scripture who are given just one corner, one part of the plan and play an incredibly important role in God's plan for his people. So um, with this particular part of the series um, for October, we'll be looking at Sarah this week. Then next week, we'll look at Rachel and Leah. I have made them share a week because they have to know about sharing. And we'll be talking about that, unfortunately, next week. And then the third week, we'll be looking at Hannah. And do you see a theme that goes through, if you know any little bit, if you remember any little bit from Sunday school about these three women, do you hear something that echoes through their stories? Can you think of a theme that echoes through their stories? motherhood they're all mothers yeah exactly they're all mothers all four of them um, and are they mothers exactly when they hope or expect to be mothers no all four of them are not all four of them wait on that promise that they will be a mother for a long time and they wait um, without seeing fruit at first they have to they have to exercise faith so that's part of what we're looking at with Sarah Sarah is first mentioned in scripture by saying that she was, um, let me just go right to, first says that she, um, the first thing it says about her, and I put this up on the screen, rather than handing out Bibles, I thought, well, I'll look at it up on the screen. One of the first things it says about Sarah, her very, the very first mention of Sarah is of Sarah and Abraham, Abraham so it's with their, their original names, Abram and Sarai, and Abram and Sarai are living in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And I'm going to show you here, if you want to see a map, here's a map of Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was way over here, see that? Way over there. 
And um, the Lord called Abram's father, Terah, out of Ur to go to, to Be- he said to go to Canaan, but Terah stopped in Haran. And then in Haran, the Lord t- called Abram out of Haran and told him to go into the land of Canaan, here. And Abram obeys, and he takes Sarai, his wife, and he also takes his nephew, Lot. Lot's father had passed away, and so we see Abram acting as a kind of protector over Lot, and Lot travels with them for a while and settles with them in Canaan. So Sarah is first mentioned, Sarai, in, uh, in, here, hold on, let me just play it. So you can see it up large in Genesis 11.30. And the first thing it says about Sarai, well, first of all, let me just go. I'm going to look at it. You don't need to have it in front of you, but you um, open your ears and you'll hear um, that Abram and Nahor took wives. It says in chapter 11, verse 29, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Very interesting because in these genealogies in the Old Testament, when they offer, first of all, when there's a name, when a woman is named, it's really important. She's a really important woman if she gets a name. And if um, there's more information given about any one particular personage in these genealogies, it's important to take a look. Have you ever, um, have you done, if any of you have tried or done the Bible in a Year blog, as you get to the genealogies, it's a little slow going. It's so hard to read all those names and know what meaning to take out of them. But one of the things that you'll find is that when there is a little bit of extra information, um, the Lord is asking us to take notice and to look at this. Well, the contrast is between Sarai and this other wife, this wife of Abram's brother. The wife of Abram's brother, her past is mentioned. Her father is mentioned. Her sister is mentioned. Sarah's parentage is not mentioned. We have no sense of what Sarah's past was like, but the, the, um, the writer of Genesis, who I do believe is Moses, is making it clear to us, Sarah has no past, and right now, it looks like she will have no future at all. She has no past, and she has no future. And we hear this, chapter 11, verse 30, in continuity with the promise um, that God made in Genesis 3. There's in the curse um, upon the serpent for deceiving Eve, for tempting her, um, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so in this curse upon the serpent, you hear God, you hear an echo of a promise. And the echo of the promise is that the devil... The evil one will not always be able to affect the children of men, will not always have this power over the children of men, that there will be struggle and strife, but there is hope that someone who would be descended from the woman, from Eve, would finally overcome the serpent. There's a promise there, echoed there. And you see it teased throughout the book of Genesis, that it starts with... Um, Eve in the garden. All is not right. They've fallen into sin, but there's hope. There is hope coming in the future through someone who will be descended from Eve. And so when we hear this about Sarah, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. 
what that says to us is, well, she will not be in the chosen line. She will not be able to be the one or one of the ones who will be an ancestor to this child who will strike the head of the serpent. But somehow she's still mentioned in her barrenness. She is still mentioned. Now, I've put other effects of barrenness. There are in the, in the Bible, you get a sense, um, certainly for a sense of physical loss, um, that so much of a woman's life was taken up with childbearing in that day and age and today. It's just a biological reality, isn't it? So this biological reality is not possible for her. And in that loss, she must have felt a sense of um, uselessness, a sense of purposelessness. And that physical effect also clearly would have had an emotional effect on her. Um, I think of with um, today, I know of several women who struggle with infertility, and it is a battle. There's this question, why me? It is a mystery, and it's, it's a part of a woman's life that people are, seem, it seems to suggest that a woman can control her fertility. Um, and just like Andrew was saying earlier, this, it's this idea that, well, surely here, there can be some measure of control. Surely in this area, um, surely there could be some tinkering or some cause and effect that could be um, altered in order to produce the desired result. There is in um, the failure to have children for a woman, there is a sense of failure with a capital F. And this is why, gentlemen, I know we're talking about women having children, but failure is something, and a sense of failure and a fear of failure is something that every single human being struggles with. Um, We might struggle with it in the area of our job or in the area of of some other sense of proving our worth, um, measuring up to a sense of our own identity. If we identify with something and we say, well, you know, I'm really good at math, and then we come up against the math problem that we can't solve, we start to wonder, well, maybe I'm not really good at math. Maybe I'm not who I thought I was. Um, Maybe I have no worth at all in my own eyes and in the eyes of others. This question of identity, this question of worth are all tied up in this sense of failure that comes um, in these biblical, for these biblical women who are struggling with barrenness. Um, so there's that emotional effect, there's that psychological effect. There's also, and I've mentioned the spiritual effect within the greater picture of salvation history, but there is also this sense in which um, women without, throughout Scripture are given this wonderful capability. God has given this women this wonderful ability to bear children, and there, even in the midst of this God-given ability, um, in the failure to live up to that, there's this sense of spiritual failure and of what good am I um, before God if I cannot do even this? Uh, sorry, we're getting depressing before we're going to find hope. Uh, any thoughts or questions about this? You've probably heard about this um, when studying Sarah in the past. Um, is this something new for you to hear uh, or not? Have you ever looked at Sarah before? There are thoughts about Sarah. There are things we're going to look at more of her story. Um, But most of her story in Genesis is taken up with this idea of the child. Where will be the child? When will the child come? And how will the child come? Will she take a part in it? Um, What can she do to make God's promise realized in her life? Okay. 
silence. Well, there's hope. Chapter 11, verse 30, she's introduced by the fact that she is barren and she has no child. Um, But then, chapter 12, verse 1, comes along right after chapter 11, verse 30. Um, There are a couple more verses, and we hear from the Lord. The Lord speaks specifically to Abram. He chooses him. He chooses to speak to Abram, and he says to Abram in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he commands him to go from his country, to go from Haran, where they had ended up, go from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then there's a promise. With this command to go, there's a promise. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a great promise coming to Abram in the midst of this knowledge that he has no child. Um, he has no child, and yet he's, he, by faith, leaves the, uh, his home, and he goes and, leaves to, and goes to the land of Canaan, and he settles in the land of Canaan. He acts in faith. He steps out in faith. Does anybody remember what happens next in their story? Okay, well, we'll get to that. We're going to talk. We're going to do the high points, and then we're going to do the low points. So these are the high points in the story of Abram and Sarah. These points of God's communication directly with them, directly with Abram. They're really amazing that God would speak directly to him and promise him these things. Because again, and then in chapter 15, there's again a promise. He reiterates the promise. The Lord says again to Abram that he would bless him, that he would give him countless offspring, He brings him out of his tent, and the Lord takes him out. It's obviously at night, and it says in verse 5 of chapter 15 of Genesis, And he, the Lord, brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In the midst of this lack, this total nothingness, no child, Sarah is barren, God is promising countless children, countless offspring. And in that moment, he is crediting, um, he is crediting Abram with righteousness because of his faith. Another high point is found in Genesis 17, 1 through 8. Again, there is the promise of offspring, and not just offspring as countless as the stars, but he says um, in this point in chapter 17, the Lord changes Abram and Sarah's names. Abram's name will no longer be Abram, but he will be Abraham, which literally means father of a multitude. And he says, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Wow! 
Again, the promise is made to Abram. And the promise involves this multitude of nations that they would, um, be, that they would become not just one nation, but many nations through Abram and Sarah, and that they would have kings that would be descended from them. We know this with David. Um, and then there's this promise of relationship that God would make an everlasting covenant with them and that they would receive land. Well, when, this is chapter 17, when does, does anybody remember, the child does not appear, everybody remember who the child is? Isaac. The child does not appear until chapter 20. And in between these promises, we've done the highlights, God is promising these things to them. In between the promises, there is a lot of what I would call human striving to obtain the promise. Abram and Sarah have heard of this promise from God and they have ways in which they think they can bring about God's promise. Well, maybe God, this is it. We don't see you acting. And this is over the course of decades. God reveals this promise over the course of decades and in the interim they're saying, okay, we're waiting. We're getting older. Uh, Sarah can no longer naturally have children, so we're really wondering, we're going we're gonna to maybe try some things. You might have forgotten about us, so we're going to try some things. And um, throughout chapters 12, um, you see it also in chapter 15, definitely in chapter 16, and even possibly in chapter 20, you see these strivings on the part of both Sarah and Abram to try to accomplish God's promise in their own lives. They're trying to give God a little help because they think he might have forgotten. And what does this mean? I would say there are a couple things going on here overall. They are, being, they are operating in an old polytheistic mindset. One of the things when you see God revealing his, himself to his people in Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament, he's drawing them away from a polytheistic type of worship to a monotheistic worship only in him. And it's not even until the point of the exile that the people of Israel realize, oh, he really means don't worship any other gods. Oh, he really means worship him alone. Oh, he really is changing the paradigm of how we worship him. Because within a polytheistic mindset, you're always based in operating out of fear. You're saying, well, I better, and I saw this when I was on a mission trip in India, um, and I've said this um, recently, but in India there were these little huts that you would go around and you would see they actually had physical gods that they would burn incense to. And they, um, the mindset was, well, this is the god of this, so I better burn some incense to him. She's the goddess of this, so I better burn some incense to her. I'm going to cover my bases and make a sacrifice over here. Uh, but I don't want to forget this guy, and I don't want him to get jealous, so I'm going to cover this over here. I'm going to give a sacrifice over here. I'm going to pay some money to this temple over here. And there's this anxiety because you never know if you've done enough to appease the gods. God is calling Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, out of a polytheistic mindset into um, a mindset of worshiping him alone and into a mindset of trust from a place of anxiety and striving to a place of trust. Um, and what does this mean for us today in this striving mindset? How do we exist in this striving mindset? Well, that's something um, that's entirely possible to think about. If I, I think about it all the time because I know that God is God 
and yet I'll operate still as though it's all resting on my shoulders and if I mess, mess up just once, it's all going to fall tumbling down. I think, well, if I don't make it on time here, then the whole world will be over and usually I'm not making it on time, so then, then I, I'm crushed by the failure of it. If I don't do um, thus and such and thus and such and finally fill out my entire to-do list, if I don't finish the day and get in bed and know that I've checked everything off my to-do list, it's going it's to haunt me um, in my sleep. I won't be able to sleep. I don't know if you're like that. But there's this sense of something left undone. If I don't dot every I and cross every T, then woe to me. If I don't finish all the things that I meant to do. And so there's this sense of striving and appeasing, appeasing the gods of the world, unseen gods, no longer gods that are living in little temples that are visible. But we worship so many other gods. And, um, and it is about control. As Andrew said this morning in his sermon, it's about that control. We believe that we can exercise control over certain areas of our lives, whether it's over our finances or over our health or over our children's lives. When um, we start to believe, um, we believe that we can shield them from every single hurt and harm, or we believe, um, we hope that they will have a life that we envision for them, but our vision of their life might be very different than the vision that they want to have of their life, or even than the vision that God wants to have of their life. And so we try to wrestle um, with it to make someone else be what we want them to be. All of this striving is just like the striving of Abraham and Sarah. There are many instances where it might be that they were trying to produce this heir. Obviously, with fertility, it's either one person or the other, or both, um, that is physically struggling with infertility. And it appears as though they might have realized this because they try a lot of different things. Um, there is, um, in Genesis 12, right after that first promise of God, they, are moving, they move to Egypt to go down to Egypt, just like their descendants would one day, to try to find food in the midst of a famine. Because if you remember that little map that I showed you, the Fertile Crescent in the ancient Near East was from modern-day Iraq, where, we showed, where you saw Ur, all the way down and around to the Nile, um, circling that desert, which is now Saudi Arabia. Um, circling the desert, there's this green crescent going all the way around, and, um, and Egypt was often called the breadbasket. They always had food. If no one else had food there, could still be found food in Egypt. So they go to Egypt, and what they do in chapter 12 is that Abram, Abram says to Sarai, um, pretend you're not my wife because I don't want to die because you're very beautiful. She's barren, but she's beautiful. And he knows that if the Pharaoh sees her and wants to make, him his wife, make her his wife, then Abram might be um, dead meat. And so they connive, kind of like Jacob, their grandson. There's a little bit of lying. There's lack of faith that God would protect them and provide for them in this foreign country. And so um, what happens is that Sarah end up, ends up going into Pharaoh's harem. Um, and part of, we don't really know what's going on here, except that it's real in the ancient Near East that a husband would potentially face death if he was powerless. And if the king desired his wife, think about David and Bathsheba. What happened to Uriah? Uriah did not live through that encounter, and David was even a righteous man, considered a righteous man. Here is um, Abram fearing for his life as he goes into Egypt. So there was a very real threat. But on one level, I wonder too if he thought, well, maybe the child of promise is to come through Sarah and not through me. 
Maybe I'm the problem, and maybe this will fix it and bring about the child of promise that God is talking about. Maybe this is how we'll have offspring and how we'll become a great nation. You see later on in chapter 15 that when there is no heir, no offspring, still after so many years, Abram has designated a man from his household, probably a servant in his household in chapter 15. And he says, O Lord God, this is in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? Where is the promise? I know you said it, but I don't see it. For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is a foreigner and a servant, Eliezer of Damascus. And, and the Lord says, no, no, no. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son from your flesh shall be your heir. The promise is reiterated. It's made clear. No, your offspring will be a, your physical offspring. Abraham, your physical offspring. So the promise is reiterated even in the midst of this human striving to fulfill the promise of God. We see it then with Sarah. Sarah strives to fulfill the promise of God. And she strives to do this through Hagar, her servant. She gives Hagar to her husband as another wife and says, well, if you are the promised father of many nations, maybe it, you know God has not let me have a child. And in chapter 16, when she's saying this, there is this profession of some measure of faith in God. She recognizes it, that God, this God who has revealed himself to them, is not just one of these localized gods, these localized gods who are not gods, as Paul says, these gods who are not gods, they are not gods, but rather he is Lord over all creation. And she's recognizing that when she says, Behold now, in chapter 16, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She knows it's not, she doesn't know what's going on, but she knows that the Lord is God and he's Lord even over her own flesh. Even in the midst of the promise, somehow, for some reason, she is still not bearing a child. And so she gives Hagar to Abram, and Hagar conceives and bears Ishmael. And there's more trouble, isn't there? Ishmael, um, Hagar gets proud um, and lords it over Sarah because Sarah couldn't uh, conceive, but Hagar could. Sarah is despised. She's rejected. She's drowning in her failure at this point. And yet the promise of God is reiterated. In chapter 17, when God reiterates the promise of this covenant to all of Abram's offspring, he says to Abram, you will keep your covenant, you'll be circumcised, and Abram circumcises all of, um, all of the family in the household, all of those who lived in his household. And then Abram, he's 99 years, and the Lord says to him, there's this covenant. Abram falls on his face, and the Lord continues to say, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He changes your name, uh, his name, and then... Um, he tells him he will have this everlasting covenant with him. And then here it is. Um, as for Sarah, your wife, this is the part of the promise that shows that the chosenness of Abraham is not just for Abraham, but it's also for Sarah. Um, there's this song that we used to sing when I was a child that was, um, Father Abraham had many sons. Did you ever sing this with your kids? It's a great VBS song. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you because by faith we are all sons and daughters of Abraham. Here we have God specifically saying, no, it's not through Hagar. No, it's through 
Sarah, that this chosen offspring will come. This offspring that will cover the face of the earth. This offspring will come through Sarah. As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. There's the promise. The promise is so clearly extended, not just for Abram, but also for Sarah right there. So Abraham, his response, he falls on his face. And what does he do? We often hear about Sarah laughing, right? There's another episode where the three men come to their tent in the next chapter. And Sarah hears them say, in a year's time, Sarah will bear a child. And she laughs out loud. And she gets in trouble for laughing. And they say, did you laugh? And she said, no, I didn't laugh. But she did laugh. (laughs) But here we hear that Abraham is laughing as well. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Oh, and then he goes on to do this alternate plan, this human plan in the face of God's impossible promise. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And the covenant will be with Isaac. And Isaac's name means laughter. Both Sarah, both Abraham laughed when they heard. They laughed Really, God, what are you thinking? How could you do this impossible thing? And then when, when Isaac is born, their laughter is genuine joy. Their, because they, their hope had been beyond possibility, beyond all hope. God brought life even out of their near-dead bodies. They were almost dead. They were so old, is what it said. I mean, that is the description of their age. And yet, even so, God brought life out of them. We hear this, and we see Paul, St. Paul, looking at this truth about Abraham and Sarah when he talks about justification and life. And here is where our own striving is, whether we're men or women, whether we're striving for a child like people today who are struggling with infertility, or whether we're striving for success or admiration from people in our world, or for any number of things, any number of successes that we would like to have. Well, in the midst of that, our success is only in the Lord. The promise of God comes about through our own failure. Because in our own failure, out of that clay pot, as Andrew said this morning, God brings his own righteousness. Through faith, he brings righteousness out of our own unrighteousness. Sin leads to death, and in our own death, even yet, there is hope. Um, And the hope is found in Jesus Christ, because Jesus is that true offspring throughout all the generations. He is the long-awaited offspring of Abraham and Sarah. And it's through faith in him that our lives are not to be lived as one striving for approval, for worth, for our identity, for success for our sense of righteousness and well-being from all sorts of other things. But God himself delights to give us that sense of love, that sense of being received despite our failures and despite our transgressions. He gives that to us through Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul said through in Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world 
did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Um, that through faith, our justification is secured, not through obedience to the Mosaic law. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We are all children of Abraham and Sarah because we live by faith and not by our own works. Um, And he goes on to talk about in verse 19, Abraham's faith did not weaken when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Our um, lack of faith in our, we, we should disbelieve in our own abilities and believe in God's ability on our behalf. He is the one who brings um, spiritual fruit out of our own spiritual barrenness. He is the one who makes us righteous um, when we are wandering in our own sinfulness, um, when we are trying to appease him through our own strength, through our own busybody work, um, through our own strivings. Um, even yet in the midst of that, he delights to justify us. Even when we are dead, um, through faith he brings us life. And so this is where our identity comes from. Paul, again, in Galatians 4, he talks about these two ways of being. The way of being that is a way of striving, a way of um, self-justification, a way of achievement, a way of um, righteousness in our own strength or worth in our own strength according to our own abilities, according to what we can do as we check off the box. He talks about that as slavery. When we are behaving that way, we are sons and daughters of Hagar, of the slaved woman, the enslaved woman. And he said, no, your calling, your calling is to be sons and daughters of Sarah, the free woman. Because when we live in grace, when we trust in our own righteousness, when we go to the depths and recognize our own failure, our own poverty um, in the face of God's richness, we realize we need to be children of Sarah. We delight to be children of Sarah because we are barren like her. Um, In her barrenness, God delights to bring life and hope for all people of all nations. And in our barrenness, he brings us even so hope. And so these words of Isaiah, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. We are not children of the slave, but children of the free woman. There is, um, I have one more thing, but I want to just stop right there and pause right there and see if you have any questions about this. This picture of Sarah and and Abraham, it's a picture of both of them. Um, We talk about Abraham a lot, but we forget too how Sarah might have felt psychologically in the midst of that barrenness. Um, She too had to have great hope and great faith. And both of them did not live out their faith perfectly. They, they, they tried to rely on their own strength a lot of times. And yet even so, with the, the amount of faith they showed, um, God credited it to them as righteousness. Any questions about that? I see some nods, but I don't see any question marks on faces. <laughs> Were they predestined? Were they predestined for salvation? Just chosen. They are chosen. The best word at this point, you know, with the theological language surrounding election and predestination, I love what I love to say is they're definitely chosen. 
and they're chosen for salvation, that they are redeemed by their own offspring, by Jesus Christ in retrospect, that they, they put their faith in the promise. And this is what um, it talks about in Hebrews when, he, when the author of the letter to the Hebrews looks at um, who are all these great heroes of the faith. They're all heroes of the faith who lived before Jesus Christ, but they exhibited the same kind of faith that principled faith in God's um, ability to follow through on his promises, he, he, despite all, all appearances. They had no earthly reason to hope. Sarah and Abraham had no earthly reason to hope that God would fulfill his promise, and yet he did when all earthly hope was lost. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She put her trust in God. She is chosen, and she is specifically chosen um, to be the mother of um, all who believe in Jesus and of Jesus physically himself as well. Um, any more thoughts about that? Thank you. That's a great, it, I didn't want to... Let's not open the whole bag on predestination, but yes, she's chosen. <laughs> um, one other thing I just want to leave you with. One of my favorite um, bands has come out with a new a new album, and if you have iTunes, um, there's been a little bit of controversy on the web. Have you noticed that U2 has put out a new album, and it, for the first time, it will just appear in your iTunes for free. If you have iTunes, it's now in your iTunes. So you can go and look for U2, and it will suddenly appear in your iTunes account. It's called Songs of Innocence, and I don't know if you know this, but U2, and especially Bono in particular, more so than some of the other band members, are pro professed Christians. They call themselves Christians, um, even though they've maybe not always lived it out in ways that we would designate Christian. But you see their faith in the lyrics of many of their songs. And one of the new songs on their album, their new album, is called Every Breaking Wave. And I think within this song is contained this idea of chasing after human ways of fulfilling God's promises. Let me just read two lyrics and then I'm going to pray. Every breaking wave on the shore tells the next one there'll be one more. And every gambler knows that to lose is what you're really there for. But are you ready? Are we ready to be swept off our feet? Every dog on the street knows that we're in love with defeat. Are we ready to be swept off our feet and stop chasing every breaking wave? Abraham and Sarah were swept off their feet by God's faithfulness, um, despite their, at times, lack of faithfulness. So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your promise to, um, to Abraham and to Sarah and for the way you fulfilled that promise so graciously through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that all of your promises are fulfilled in him, that the no that was against us because of our own sin is made yes because of the atoning sacrifice of his own blood. And so we receive that. We receive your yes for us through Sarah's offspring, Jesus. And we ask, Lord, give us the grace to walk through our lives with um, faith, faith in you, and um, to let go of our own striving and our own self-justification. So we ask this for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.